Q&A on all topics for long-term care facilities. A conversation with the healthcare experts at Quality Insights. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities that we encourage everyone who is interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights. Today, we'll be having a Q&A on post-COVID syndrome, the end of the PHE, and all other topics related to long-term care. And now I'd like to briefly introduce today's panelists. We have a couple of our quality improvement specialists here today, Deborah Wright and Penny Imes. And we're also joined by our infection preventionist, Jennifer Brown, and Quality Insights Medical Director, Dr. Jean Storm. Now with the holidays, we've only received one pre-submitted question this week. So our pre-submitted question was regarding the changes with the nurse staffing and PPDs. Can CNAs or LPNs be counted if their position is restorative? They do not have an assignment, but are working with residents for ROM, et cetera. So Kathy, I'll take that one. Now, while I, I'm going to do my best to answer this in the way that I um, have interpreted the regulations and the guidance, we do not profess to be um, experts in this. So this is my interpretation of it. And um you know, uh, we'll we'll go from there, and hopefully, this will answer your question. So, as we all know, um, this weekend on July first, the new staffing requirements for Pennsylvania. I just want to be clear with that: this is Pennsylvania, not West Virginia. Um, went into effect that the minimum PPD needed to be two point eight seven hours of direct resident care for each resident. And they define that as only direct care provided by nursing service personnel can be counted towards that total number of hours of the general nursing care required. Now, there are some, um, they did give some examples of what could not be counted in in that PPD and the examples that they gave, um, while they're not all inclusive, but they included um, people on orientation, light duty nursing staff, the RNAC staff, hospice, private caregivers, feeding assistants, nursing students, and unit clerks, even if some of those um, individuals may be nursing assistants. They did go on further to explain that light duty could be counted if they were providing um, direct care, such as nail care, feeding, and one-to-one assistance. And they further explained that lunch times could be counted if the staff member was still on duty, meaning that they were physically present and in the building and could be pulled if help were needed. You cannot count your lunch time if you're going off site. So, you know, that kind of goes um, in one sentence, they're saying you can't count those that are on light duty, but then they give examples of where light duty could be counted if they were doing direct resident care. Um, They also said that nursing staff accompanying residents on appointments could be counted and that managers who don't normally provide direct care, but they're needed because of call-offs should be counted, but you have to make sure that you can provide proof that those hours were um, direct resident care so that they could be counted in your PPD. 
So in regards to the initial question, can a CNA or an LPN be counted if their position is restorative? I think you need to be very careful. I think it depends on their job description. I think you need to review this job description, make sure it um, specifically states if they're providing direct care what is that direct care that they're truly providing and how much of their time is spent on direct care. So while they may be out on the floor doing restorative or ambulation programs and that's direct care, maybe that's only half of their day and the other half of their day is doing something else. So I know that doesn't really answer this person's question completely, but I th my recommendation is to um, look at the guidance and look at your job description, because I have heard of buildings where they've already started to look at this um, even before July 1st, and it, it all goes back to their job description. So make sure that you've updated, reviewed, had them sign you know, any new job descriptions and, and how you're going to count that and defend it if you do count it. I mean, we, we've already heard where RN staff are being challenged as to whether the RN that's on duty should be counted in the PPD. And it goes back to your job description and um, making sure it states what that direct resident care is and, and how you have it set up in your payroll. It may be something where an RN supervisor is 50% of their time is counted towards direct care and 50% of their time is coded towards administration. So again, it's it's not a simple answer. It's one that needs to be looked at at the facility level following your job descriptions and how you have it set up in payroll. All right, Deb, I think you said some people in the group had other topics to discuss while people uh, think of their questions. Sure. So I, I, I'll talk about what we that we have some things that are upcoming. And while I'm talking, I'll just do my part. And then um, Penny and the others can talk um, in. We all know also um, we have the new MDS that is going to be coming into effect on October 1st. So we will be devoting the month of August. These uh, weekly webinars will be devoted to those MDS changes each week. We'll take different sections of the MDS. So I encourage you to um, look at what topics we're going to be talking about so that if there's somebody that maybe typically doesn't attend these sessions, but it's their discipline, such as a social worker, um, you can invite them and have them also attend. And if there's any questions that any of your staff have in regards to the new MDS, um, they can feel free to reach out to myself and I'll be happy to work with facilities and um, make sure that you have all the information as we, October 1st is, is going to be here before we know it. And there's um, a lot of changes that are more than just, okay, now we have to code this on the MDS. They're actually processes that are going to have to be put into place at the facilities. So it's best to start looking at those processes and start collecting that data now and, and having the process in place. So if there's things that we can do to guide you with that, um, we will certainly do that. But like I said, we'll talk more about that in August and um, hopefully more of your IDT and MDS team will be able to join on their respected weeks. I can um, talk a little bit about something that's just the, the new regulation that started July 1st in Pennsylvania. And I know, I think we had one or two questions about the new requirement that all medical directors of facilities in Pennsylvania 
are required to have four hours of CME in the area specific of uh, post-acute or long-term care or medical direction. Uh, I think two facilities reached out to me looking for places where they could direct their medical directors, because it's not going to be your medical director who's going to, I mean, you, you might have a medical director who's up to date on the regulations. And so they might on their own, go ahead and pursue their CME that has to be specific in the area of post-acute and long-term care or medical direction of a long-term care facility. So you might get lucky and have a medical director who does that on their own. Um, I think more likely each facility is going to have to tell the medical director, you really need to get this CME. And I would say I think it would be a really great idea to tell the medical director where they could get it done. I am thinking about putting together a package of four hours of CME specific to long-term care, post-acute and long-term care medical direction. I'm a certified medical director, so I can do that. I just, I want to make sure that there's enough interest. So if you are interested in receiving that education, it would just be like a four-hour package. You can go ahead and reach out to me directly, um, you know, or any of us in letting know your interest. And, um, you know, we can gauge that and put it together. Um, I, I will say um, California now has a requirement that every medical director needs to be a certified medical director. So that is a requirement that is coming to effect in California, I think at the end of this year, or the beginning of 2024. So I think all states are really moving this way and having medical directors of long-term care facilities to be have education specifically to address their job in long-term care facilities. So I, I think it's really important. You, you really can't kind of go into a, a facility as a, as a physician, I think, and just think you're just gonna practice general medicine. I mean, it's very specific. So if you have any questions about this requirement or any issues in talking to your medical director, feel free to reach out to me directly. Thanks, Jane. And I put Dr. Storm's email in the chat. It's jstorm at qualityinsights.org. And uh, Deborah Wright put her contact information if you want to reach out about the MDS changes. It's dwright at qualityinsights.org. Hi, everyone. I wanted to address a question that came through um, one of my colleagues regarding um, metrics for community transmission for respiratory viruses, including COVID, um, with uh, regards to masking requirements and when to change um, the um, amount of masking that you're doing in your facility. So what I'd like to do is share a link to the CDC COVID data tracker. Um, and that is a link from the CDC. I'm just gonna put it in right now, um, which tracks the weekly hospitalizations deaths and vaccinations. Um, so you can take a look at that to see in your community, the trends that are available. So. All right, thank you, Jennifer. And um, I wanted to, to mention one of the things that we always do at the end of these um, webinars is ask you for your feedback, for your evaluation and also topics of interest. And 
so far, what we we've been getting back from people are, you know, the regulatory updates, which we're we're really trying to stay updated with those, and that you know the staffing um, updates, all of the Pennsylvania regulatory updates, anything that um, comes out from CDC, CMS. We try to make sure that you have that information. The other topic of interest that we hear back a lot is on infection control issues, um, UTIs, assessments, antibiotic stewardship. So we are hearing what you're saying. We're trying to make sure that we get those webinars out there for regulations. That's part of that series of the MDS. You know, those updates are coming. That's something that you have to have in place. And so that webinar series is upcoming. Uh, any other more specific infection control areas that you'd like to hear about? I think we do quite a, a good bit of infection control, but you know, anything more particular that you'd like to hear about? We we want these webinars to be worthwhile to the people who are attending. Um, you know, we can we can talk about all kinds of different things, but unless it's something specific that is helping you in your nursing home, you and your staff move forward with what you need to do. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a better use of our time if we get that feedback for exactly those types of things that you'd like to hear about, if there's something outside of that. I don't know, Jennifer, if you wanted to talk a little bit, again, a reminder, and I know we put this out in the newsletter, but I think, you know, we've had a lot of individual outreach from some nursing homes and their infection control preventionists. I know there was a lot of turnover over the last year in that role. And so you have a lot of new infection preventionists and Jennifer has offered the infection control boot camp and then offering um, that, that um, outreach to nursing homes. So I don't know if you wanted to just, again, a reminder of what you have to offer. And, and I know a couple infection preventionists who had the discussions, um, conversations with Jennifer, and they let me know that it was really good and, and really useful. Uh, thanks, Penny. Yes, uh, we offer a lot of support um, resources for infection preventionists. Um, in addition to the electronic resources that we have in our webinars, we do offer on-site visits. Um, and the on-sites can be you know, whatever you are focusing on right now, um, the on-site visit can be, you know, a comprehensive review of your infection control program, which includes a review of your policies and procedures, and also a walkthrough of your facility to point out any areas that may um, be something to, um, you know, look at the quality improvement for. Also, if there is a new infection preventionist or someone who is new to um, the role in the facility, um, we do on-site one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, technical assistance uh, where we can focus on, you know, whatever um, pieces of your infection control program that you'd like to focus on. Um, in addition to the one-on-one -on -one support, uh, we are piloting our infection preventionist boot camp this fall. Uh, this program will pilot in West Virginia first, um, and it is a comprehensive program to discuss um, those key components of 
you know, your main roles as an infection preventionist. Over the past few years, we've had a lot of turnover on, um, you know, the infection preventionist role. Um, and a lot of the feedback that I get from infection preventionists is number one, we don't have the time, the resources um, to do what we need to do. And also, you know, a lot of times the um, role comes with a vacancy before they get there. They don't have that overlap with the previous infection preventionists and they're not sure how to proceed, um, you know, starting off in that facility. Um, so this program will be those basics on, you know, number one, you know, how to put together your infection prevention program. And number two, those key components and leadership skills needed to, you know, really thrive in your role. So um, information about that will be coming out shortly. Um, again, it's going to be piloting this fall and, you know, hope to see all of our new IPs there. And just one other thing that I received um, a question from from someone is, um, and actually this was someone from a dialysis facility, but I thought, hey, I'll bring it up here today with all of you from the nursing homes. Um, there was an issue, actually, it was, it was from the staff at the dialysis facility talking about their communication with um, nursing homes who were sending dialysis residents to them. And they felt that there might be some, some concern, issues, misunderstanding about how to handle the catheters, um, you know, addressing changes, that sort of thing. And, and they've done some indo individual education, but we do partner with um, in-stage renal disease network who would be able to offer a lot more education um, on, you know, what to look for with a dialysis. So if that is something, you know, that in-stage renal disease, communication with your dialysis facility, education on what to look for with the dialysis residents, um, if that's a topic that, that would be of interest, please let us know. And we will look at setting something like that up. Um, I know sometimes a lot of that communication, you know, is kind of, uh, Communication is a big deal, and we will be talking about communication also moving forward, not just with uh, among nursing st home staff, but also the different healthcare settings. Um, when referrals from hospitals to hospitals, dialysis facilities, that type of thing. One other partner that I wanted to mention is the Alliant Healthcare Centers of Excellence for Behavioral Health. Um, we have the, them highlighted in our newsletter. I've had a call with them. I've talked to a couple of nursing homes who they're having, you know, it, it's a different population that you're, a lot of people are dealing with right now outside of the traditional long-term care population. There can be younger um, residents, those who are coming with substance use disorders. It's those behaviors that are even outside of the dementia. You know, a lot of us have had the dementia training. We've done dementia training with our staff, but we're up against this different type of behavior that not everybody is prepared to deal with. And you do have to look at, you know, these mental disorders, substance use um, treatment. It, it, it's different. Than, than what we've traditionally dealt with in long-term care. And it 
but I'm hearing a lot more of it. So that is something, you know, Alliant, the Centers of Excellence, they have so many good resources, um, a good website. They're willing to offer at no cost assistance to nursing homes in Pennsylvania to educate staff on this very issue. Um, so we, I just wanted to point out that that's something that's available also. It looks like we don't have any further questions, so I think I can wrap us up. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining us here today and thank all of you for joining us here today. And we hope to see you back here again next week. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia 